that idea that human nature doesn't change, that we still face the same fears as our great-grandparents did. We still deal with the same challenges, and therefore, because divine nature doesn't change and human nature doesn't change, what God said 20 centuries ago is still relevant today. So our job is simply to find the principles within God's revelation and apply those principles to the needs of the day, knowing that God's Word is still relevant, His Word is still a two-edged sword, His Word is still useful for correcting and training and reproving and training us in righteousness. God's Word is still speaking today. Hi, and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. You know, we are in a changing culture And when you combine that with today's political climate, it can be quite a mix. Well, today we're going to visit with Dr. Jim Dennison, the founder of the Dennison Forum. He also serves as resident scholar for ethics with Baylor Scott and White Health. Dr. Jim Dennison, welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. Byron, I'm glad to be on with you today. Thank you for the privilege of this conversation. You and your wife, Janet, live in Dallas, Texas, where you have two sons. And the best part of it, Jim, are those four grandchildren. That's really all we should be talking about. (laughs) I know it's politics and election, but that's what matters. Here's the crazy thing about this, and I never knew this was possible. All four of my grandchildren have skipped inherited original sin. I didn't know that could be done, but they are perfect. Each and every one of them are sinless. And perfect. It's just an astounding thing. We're just so grateful. How does that work, Jim? My two granddaughters fall into that same category. I haven't figured it out yet, but they are like angels, right? It's the best thing. Um, In fact, it's been said that the reason grandparents and grandchildren get along so well is they have a common enemy. I think that's probably true. (laughs) I think that's a good word. Jim, I was interested when I was looking at some of your background where your dad served our country in the Army. He was stationed in the South Pacific during World War II. But coming back from the war greatly toppled his views about faith and God. They drastically changed. It absolutely did. Yeah, and that's really in so many ways why I am who I am and why we do what we do. So thanks for, for asking about that. Yeah, Dad was very active in, uh, in his church. In fact, his friends thought he'd go into vocational ministry growing up. World War II started. He enlisted in the Army. He was a good typist, so they made him a radio operator, put him with 300 men on an island in the South Pacific. Only 17 survived. Oh, my. Such horrible atrocities that Dad never went to church again. And so I grew up in Houston, Texas, in a loving, wonderful home, but no spiritual life, and all my dad's questions. If there's a God, why is there war, science and faith, evil and suffering, all of that. Dad had his first heart attack when I was two and died when I was in college. Oh, my, Jim. So, yeah, so my story really is Dad's story. I became a Christian as a teenager due to the influence of some friends, had all my dad's questions. If there's a God, science and faith, evil and suffering, all of that. C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, what I encountered that in high school, was absolutely a lifesaver for me. The first time I'd seen anyone grapple with faith intellectually. So wound up doing a Ph.D. in philosophy and teaching philosophy and apologetics as a pastor and a professor and what we do now. But really, my passion is to reach people like that. Your father had questions like many have about faith. How do we know the Bible is true? What about other religions? Why does God allow bad things to happen? Those same questions, as you mentioned, eventually provided doubts for you. What was the turning point for you? Yeah, thank you. When I read Lewis's work, it was the first time I'd seen anyone deal with faith intellectually. From there, I went to Houston Baptist University and grew up in Houston. They gave me an academic scholarship. It was close. And Dr. A.O. Collins, the head of the Christianity department, adopted me. He became my spiritual father. 
We played tennis together every week. We spent time together. He let me ask my questions. He let me grapple with my doubts. He let me struggle with all the places that I was so struggling internally to try to make sense of all of this. It really became the spiritual father I never had. He wound up coming to my licensing, my ordination, came to our wedding, came to Dad's funeral. I actually did his funeral, and he became one of the dearest influences in my life. But he was just one of these people willing to let me ask my questions and do so in a spirit of grace. You know, Jim, I think you're saying some key things here, especially in light of today's generation with so many, as we mentioned, having these questions, but even more so having mentors or people willing to come alongside and and listen to the questions and not just mark them as as doubters and unbelievers and avoid, but to build relationships, to really disciple and to show the love of Jesus Christ. I believe that's where we make all the differences. When we mentor people, we can mentor people. It's back to what Paul said to Timothy, you know, what I've given you, give others. Some years ago, Michael Lindsay, the president of Gordon College and a good friend of mine, wrote a phenomenal book in which he looked at the Fortune 100 to Fortune 500 CEOs, and one thing they had in common, in fact, the only thing really they had in common was they had been mentored as young adults, typically between 25 and 35 years of age. It wasn't that they went to college or they went to the Ivies. It wasn't that they grew up with wealth or didn't. In fact, a third of them grew up with no wealth of any kind. It was that every one of them was mentored in a significant way as a young adult, and that was the key to their path. Wow. Why is it so important, Jim, that cultural questions be answered with biblical truth? Ephesians 4.15 calls us to speak the truth in love. And that's the balance. So much of what we're seeing in our culture today seems to me that it's one or the other. People are willing to speak what they believe to be biblical truth, but they're doing so in a conflicted way. They're doing it in an accusatory way, kind of an elitist sort of a spirit that's more confrontational than it is gracious. Or they're focusing on love in such a way that denies truth. They're so wanting to be tolerant. They're so wanting to be accepting and gracious that they're leaving out the truth that's essential to the life change God is about. So the balance is speaking biblical truth, but doing so with biblical grace. It's Matthew 18, 15, where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, you have to go to him. In other words, Brian, I'm not allowed to say about you what I won't say to you. And that's true of social media. That's true of what I say about the president or the governor or my neighbor next door. Think how different the world would be if everybody lived by Matthew 18, 15 and obeyed Ephesians 4, 15. Oh, my Jim. <laughs> Can't even imagine. Well, when we speak about today's culture, of course, heated opinions, expressions of anger through looting and violence, we seem to be at a pivotal point in America and the world. Does God's Word really speak into these issues that are dividing us as a nation? Is it all part of God's greater plan dealing with nations that rebel against His Word? Absolutely it is. One of the reasons, and as you know so well, and why it's so foundational to your ministry and what you and your team do so well, is you understand that the Bible is still relevant because human nature doesn't change. I was in a philosophy class in seminary when I first came across that statement, that idea that human nature doesn't change, that we still face the same fears as our great-grandparents did. We still deal with the same challenges, and therefore, because divine nature doesn't change and human nature doesn't change, what God said 20 centuries ago is still relevant today. So our job is simply to find the principles within God's revelation and apply those principles to the needs of the day, knowing that God's Word is still relevant. His Word is still a two-edged sword. His Word is still useful for correcting and training and reproving and training us in righteousness. God's Word is still speaking today. J.I. Packer said the Bible is God preaching, and that's still true. Jim, how does God typically use political leaders to govern the people? 
Yeah, thank you. That's in three ways as I look at how Scripture answers that question. The first that comes to mind immediately are the political leaders who wish to be used by God and know that they are. So now you're thinking about Joseph in Egypt. You're thinking about William Wilberforce fighting slavery, where people are called into political roles that are using those roles to the glory of God. I'm convinced myself, Byron, that God is calling more Christians into public service than are answering the call. I'm convinced that God is calling Christians to partner with His Spirit in political leadership to make a difference for the kingdom. So that's one side. On the opposite side, the second, is God using leaders who are opposed to His will and His work. And now you're thinking of Pharaoh and his hardened heart in Egypt. You're thinking of the Chinese as they're persecuting the church in China. But God uses them in spite of themselves. I've often said that God redeems all that He allows. Sometimes he redeems in ways that we get to experience. Sometimes he redeems in spite of us. Pharaoh didn't get to experience the good of the Exodus, but God used him nonetheless. Judas obviously didn't get to experience the good of God's kingdom, but God used Judas's betrayal of Jesus. And so God's using the leaders in China to spread the gospel in China. When I was in Beijing, I got to meet with some underground church leaders who were convinced that if the church wasn't oppressing the people, there wouldn't be such a turn to the gospel right now. So that's that second category, God using leaders in spite of themselves. In the middle, a third category, very briefly, are leaders that are being used by God that don't know they're being used by God, even though they're not specifically opposed to the Word of God. Now you're thinking about what happened in the book of Esther, for instance, as God was willing to use those leaders, and and in the book of Daniel, as God used leaders in Babylon and Persia to advance his kingdom, even if they weren't certain or knowing that they were being used. I've been to Cuba ten times, and I can tell you God's using the Cuban leaders there to advance the kingdom, even when they don't know they're being used, in terms of the faithfulness of the people in responding to the economic depravity of the day. So those are kind of three categories in which God uses and guides leaders. Jim, I think you mentioned just a moment ago that because the church was persecuting Christians in China, that they were seeing the growth. I think you meant to say the government was persecuting Christians, allowing the growth for Christianity. Thank you for that catch. Yeah. <laughs> 1947, when Mao came in and broke the missionaries out, essentially made the church illegitimate. It's when the government, not the church, thank you for that, no. that, that the church began to grow a hundredfold so much. Yes. There are 100,000 coming to Christ every day in China oh. because of government oppression. Well, we see in the Bible, as you mentioned, examples of good and evil leadership. Is it primarily a reflection of the pride and power of man or the confused priorities of a nation's people that we have that? Yeah, you see both, don't you? It's the pride of man, of course. Genesis 3-5, as I'm convinced, right? The essential sin, the essential temptation is to be our own God. Every sin, every temptation is a version of that. Be your own God by stealing this or by lusting after that person or by misrepresenting this. That's the pride of man. It's the will to power, as Nietzsche said. That's a basic drive in human nature, and that's what we're seeing today on a large, significant level. Yuval Levin's new book, A Time to Build, is a phenomenal exposition of how institutions that used to form character, used to mold character, are now being made platforms for personal celebrity, whether that's in politics or CEOs in government or pastors or professors or media officials all across the board. These institutions are now being made platforms rather than molds, and they're being used for personal celebrity rather than the collective good. And that's a huge problem. Oh, Jim, where are the patriots of today? 
That's the question, because the patriots back in the founding of the country were the opposite of that. They were serving the common good. They were serving. In fact, they were willing to pledge their wives, their fortune, and their sacred honor to sign a declaration of independence that would have meant their death had the war for independence not been successful. And so that's what we need again, isn't it? Be patriots and personal sacrifice. And many Christians altogether ignore the political process because they say, well, if God's using leaders that oppose him anyway, why should I get involved? And that's the time when we're most needed, isn't it? The darker the room, the more needed the light. That's when we're called to be salt out of the salt shaker and light that gets out from under the basket. It's so fascinating to me that Paul would write in Romans 13 and Peter would write in First Peter about the necessity of praying for our leaders when those leaders were Nero and Roman officials that led ultimately to the martyrdom of the very men that were writing that we should pray for them. It's the more opposition we face, the more necessary the gospel. People oppose us. We need to be loving. That was actually my next question, bringing up that verse in Romans 13 about the Apostle Paul addressing Christians citizenship. In fact, what Christians believed at that time was considered illegal because they would not say that Caesar is Lord. And yet Paul says this is the government you're to pray for. That's the very ones. In fact, the less we agree with them, the more we should pray for them. I remember some years ago, Billy Graham that was being interviewed by uh, Larry King, and he was asked if his son Franklin turned out to be gay, would he still love him? And Billy Franklin said, I would love him even more because he would need my love even more. The more we disagree with what somebody is saying or what they're doing, the more we need to be loving them and praying for them. And the more we need to be speaking biblical truth, the less biblical truth is accepted. Oh, Jim, what a word we need to hear right now, because I think we're allowing the opposite side because they don't agree with us not to motivate us for love and prayer and concern, but it's causing that division. I'm afraid it is. We're pulling back at a time when we most need to be going forward. Now, I'm not saying this is easy. I don't like being struck on the right cheek and having to turn the other either. I don't like the cancel culture. I don't like the things that people will say about me if I stand up for biblical morality. It's not a fun time to be in that place. But something, Brian, that's really encouraged me over the years is the fact that God not only has a location for our calling, but also a chronology. It's by His will we believe that we live in Dallas, but it's also by His will that we live now, and not a hundred years ago, or a hundred years from now if the Lord tarries. Which is to say, if God couldn't use us in this moment, we wouldn't be alive in this moment. God's called us to this moment for such a time as this. Jim, you know, one of the reasons God ordains human government is to restrain evil. And there's a lot of evil in our country today, as you can see. Why isn't our government doing more to restrain this evil? I believe that we're at a time in human history where we're experiencing the breakdown in institutions on such a level that, as I mentioned before with Levin, our leaders, and this is not all of them by any means, but a good deal of our leaders on both sides of the aisle are using the crisis to advance personal agendas rather than using the crisis to rise to sacrificial servant leadership. The crisis of the day demands service and sacrifice, rather than using it, manipulating it, turning it into personal brand, taking advantage of the opportunity to advance ourselves in some personal way. If we'd had that kind of thinking in World War II, we would have lost World War II. It was the sacrifice of our leaders who were willing to step forward and do whatever it took that is what we need today. And that's where Christians can make such an obvious and dramatic difference. Jim, as you well know, we are on the fringes of a major political campaign and vote for our president and other important offices around our country. How should we be asking God to prepare us to vote and to prepare us for this election? Yeah, great question. We ought to be asking about every issue we're facing. What does Scripture say? As opposed to what does the Democratic Party say or the Republican or an independent position or what do I believe or what does my social feed suggest? One of the real problems with social media today is it's so easy for us 
to collate and, uh, as it were, aggregate only the content with which we agree. And studies have demonstrated we become even less responsive to the other side the more that we pay attention only to what we believe. So let's get outside of our social feed. Let's look at new sources that we don't agree with. Let's consider other sides. But let's measure through everything. What does Scripture say about this issue? What does Scripture say about that issue? And if we can represent biblical truth as we go forward, then we're doing what God can bless. You know, Jim, grassroots efforts are a powerful means to uh, make changes. We've seen over the years how powerful they have changed in many ways, ideas and philosophies of our country. How can we as Christians better make our views known on, say, like pending legislation? What are the do's? What are the don'ts? Great question. In the paper, I have, actually on our website, have a paper, What Does the Bible Say About Politics? And in it, it suggests some of these steps. The first thing we do, obviously, is pray. Scripture calls us to pray for our leaders, be involved, and to vote in the process. But beyond that, we can be involved in the political process. We can reach out locally to those that are in whatever party we're aligned with or whatever movement we're concerned about and ask, how can I volunteer time? How can I be involved in this process? How can I be part of the answer to this? We can pray about whether we should run for office. And then another position, a fifth argument that I would make is we should be engaged personally in communicating with our elected leaders. I've heard this from mayors and even governors over the years. The typical citizen does not know the outsized influence they have when they write a letter, when they make a phone call, when they send an email. There was a day in the restaurant industry, I don't know if it's still true, but they assumed that for every complaint about the food, there were 20 others that didn't like the food and just didn't complain. So they took a complaint and multiplied it by 20. Well, that's what they do in Washington. That's what they do in your state capitol. If you'll get involved, if you'll make a phone call, if you'll sign a petition, if you'll do something personal, and the more personal the better, by the way, you'll have an influence on legislation beyond what you might imagine. That is a great word, because I think we don't even put that in our mindset sometimes. You know, we just give up so easily. Well, thinking about someone out there is wondering, should I get in this mess? What are the first steps to take if someone is looking to be involved more than just voting, but to be a potential candidate to serve in public office? Great question. Some years ago, Frederick Buechner said that your call is the place where the world's great need and your great joy intersect. So if you've got a passion about something, if there's some cause that's really on your heart, if there's some movement that you really want to see advanced and you want to be salt light into that movement, then ask yourself, how do I get that done politically? Does that mean I'm running for office? Does that mean I'm in, involved in some proposition? Does that mean that I'm engaged in some grassroots local political movement? But how do I affect change? How can I make a difference? And it may be that that means that you're specifically running for office to be a change agent in that way and on that level. But that's why you run. You don't run to be the celebrity like we were talking about. You don't run to advance your personal agenda. You run to make a difference. And if running to make a difference is in your heart, then ask the Lord to show you what the steps are specifically to make that happen and with whom you should work to make that happen. Something I'll add very quickly, Byron, that we've got to be so careful about, it takes money to run for office. We want to be especially careful as Christians that we don't sell our integrity in the process of raising funds. We want to be absolutely certain that God is leading us to the means and the resources by which to run for office with integrity so we can govern with integrity. What a great word there, Jim, totally. Should we be careful not to become too vocal or public engaging our political position where it overshadows our real identity as a disciple of Christ on mission to make other disciples? Critical point. Just an absolutely vital issue that everything we're talking about right now is a means of advancing the kingdom of God. Not my kingdom, but his kingdom. 
Otherwise, I'm using my faith to advance my agenda. I'm using my involvement in my church. I'm using the fact that I'm being public about my faith as a way of getting more people to vote for me, getting more people to support my position. And then I'm using God as a means to my end, even if it's a good end. At the end of the day, it's with John the Baptist. I must decrease, but he must increase. We ask about everything we do. Will this glorify Jesus? Will this movement advance his kingdom? Am I doing this for his glory or for mine? That's a tough question to ask and a tough question to answer honestly. It might be good to speak to somebody I trust from an accountability perspective and ask them to hold me accountable as well to my desire to do this to the glory of God. Jim, in his farewell address, George Washington stated the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. Do you believe America can move back towards the principles of its founding? I do believe it can. I believe it. Obviously, we all know this. It's too soon to give up on God, always too soon to give up on God. But the Holy Spirit is at work right now in such powerful ways. Like I said, God redeems all that he allows. One way he's doing that in this pandemic is he's turning people to the, that are recognizing mortality on a new level to the gospel and to the Holy Spirit in ways that we've not seen before. I know of a church in California, for instance, that had 8,000 in their online service before the pandemic, 1.2 million online on Easter Sunday. We're seeing a response to radio. That's why I'm so glad to do this with you. We're seeing a response to what's happening in digital capacities where people are really hungry right now. There have been four great awakenings in American history, 1734, 1792, 1858, 1904, and 5. Every one of them was preceded by calamity. And through that calamity, people realized they needed to turn back to God before it was too late. Jim, can you share some current examples of Christians relating more effectively to our culture as salt and light? I can give you some local examples. I was on a conversation yesterday with a group of pastors and faith leaders in the Dallas area that are wanting to ask, how can we be engaged relative to the economic deprivation that's existing in South Dallas among minority communities? How can we inject capital? How can we be involved as faith leaders? How can we rally both corporate and not-for-profit organizations together? And what leading role could the church take in recapitalizing businesses and minority communities that are suffering during the pandemic? That was yesterday in a phone call I was on with national leaders and local leaders asking that very question. I'm aware of two pastors in Dallas. One is African-American, the other is Anglo. They have developed seven years of friendship. Not only do they preach for each other occasionally, but their churches come together for common cause, and they found ways to bring others from South Dallas and North Dallas together to combat a variety of issues that our city is facing. God's doing things right now to move us if we'll simply ask, Lord, how can I join your spirit at work to make a tangible difference for the glory of God. There is a glimmer of hope here. Absolutely there is. God is on his throne and he is on the move. How can we as believers act in ways that empower our witness when this whole election is over with? I think that's going to be very critical for us. Absolutely critical. In fact, the last book I wrote is on civility for that very reason. That's why I wrote this book. The title is Respectfully, I Disagree. Subtitle is How Can We Be Civil People in an Uncivil Day? And the whole reason I wrote the book was exactly what you just said. We need to protect our witness during the election so we can use our witness after the election. It's critical that we're concerned about who wins an election, but winning souls is eternal. 
So again, let's not say about people what we won't say to them. Let's not be involved in the cancel culture of the day. Let's speak biblical truth with biblical grace during the election, and that will empower our witness on the other side of the election. Jim, as we wrap up today's show, I'd like for you to reflect, if you will, you mentioned already William Wilberforce and how his spiritual rebirth on Easter of 1786 led him to discover his life's purpose and can exhort our listeners to do the same in the culture challenges we have today. Yeah, what a great example, isn't he? He has been for a very long time of how God can use one person to make such a dramatic difference. So he's got this remarkable background. He has this background of his own family's involvement in the political world of the day, how he had this kind of status and stature, had these means, had this wealth, and was really struggling with his life. What do I do with myself? What do I do with my life? How do I move forward in this kind of a context? And he really had a rebirth, had a kind of a spiritual rebirth, had a real sense of who he is and what he is in a way that really made a difference for him on a level that was became transforming. He had seen the horrors of the English slave trade. He became convicted about all of them, but it was really on that Easter Sunday, 1786, that he had, as he wrote in his diary, he, he came to understand, my walk is a public one. My business is in the world. I must mix in the assemblies of men or quit the post, which providence seems to have assigned me, as he came to see the horrors of the English slave trade and was vilified by pro-slavery forces blocked in Parliament, he nonetheless knew that that was his calling, to make a difference using political means to advance a kingdom end. And ultimately, he participated in what's been known as one of the turning events in the history of the world. That is exhorting. So encouraging to hear that. Dr. Jim Dennison, thank you, my dear brother, for what you do for Christ's kingdom. Thanks for stopping by our Mid-South Viewpoint program today. If those want to know more information about the Denison Forum, I mean, there's so much that you have to offer, a daily email and all kinds of resources. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah, I do an article every day. We call it the Daily Article. It's got a really fancy title. Get up every morning very early around 4 o'clock and finish this article that we send out. I think we have about 250,000 subscribers around the world and the social reach and all of that. It's about 1.9 million. So it's a daily article. It's a monthly fight paper on things like what does the Bible say about politics? A lot of books that we've published during the year, and then a good deal of media I get to do like this. All that's available at our website, denisonforum.org, D-E-N-I-S-O-N, forum.org. We're a donor-based ministry, so all of that is free. All the digital resources, and uh, would love for people to come and look at that book. Jim, God bless you to you and your family. Thanks so much for being our guest today. Brian, what a privilege to be on with you today. I appreciate the conversation, appreciate your mind and your heart, and what you're doing for the glory of God. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Today's Mid-South Viewpoint is brought to you by Navage. Just think about all the nasty stuff we breathe in every day. You know, the dust, allergens, bacteria, pollen, pollution. You know the things in Memphis here. What are we breathing? Well, if you wash your hands and brush your teeth every day, then why aren't you cleaning your nose to clean out all that junk that's trapped up in there? Let me tell you about this product. If you suffer from allergies, sinus infections, or are worried about what you're breathing in, it's called Navage. N-A-V-A-G-E. What's Navage? Well, it's the world's only nose cleaner with powered suction. People that have suffered from lifelong allergies call Navage a complete game changer. They are breathing more clearly, sleeping better, snoring less, 
less and feeling a whole lot better. In fact, 90% of people who use Navage report feeling healthier. Now with cold and flu season just around the corner, why not make Navage part of your daily health routine? Experience what it's like to truly breathe better, sleep deeper, and feel healthier. Go ahead and visit Navage.com. That's Navage.com. Or you can find Navage at Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, Bed Bath & Beyond, and Target. Navage. N-A-V-A-G-E. N-A-V-A-G-E. 